Thanks for joining us today at Launch Point Church in Lebanon, Tennessee. We believe the Bible is the written word of God without error and useful for every part of our lives. We believe that through learning and teaching of the word, others might come to know God, find freedom, discover their purpose, and make a difference. Thanks again and enjoy today's message from Pastor Jim Cubitt. I want to tell you about a story today about Cyrus. I'm going to start with a story from about Cyrus, King Cyrus, the king of Persia, uh, the, at the time that he lived, the most powerful man in the world, probably. And King Cyrus captured a prince of an enemy country and his family and had them brought to his throne room. And Prince Cyrus pulled the prince forward and said, Prince, whatever his name was, let me ask you a question. If I save your life and let you go, what will you give me? And the prince said, I'll give you half my kingdom, half of everything that I own. He said, okay. He said, what if I saved your wife or your kids? What if I let your kids go? He said, then I would give you everything in my kingdom if you let my kids go. And he said, all right, what about your wife? What, what would you give me if I released your wife? And he said, I would give you myself. And the prince was so, or the king Cyrus was so impressed with that statement that he would give half of what he owned for his own life Everything he owned for the life of his children. But his own life for the life of his wife. That he let him all go. And they're all walking back home. And the wife, or prince, the prince looked at his wife and said, Man, what about that King Cyrus? That was a, that's, a, that's a handsome man. And he looked over at his wife and his wife was all doe-eyed and said, I'm, I'm sorry, I... I didn't even notice what he looked like over the husband that was willing to give everything for me. This is the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. That he didn't give half of his kingdom or all of his kingdom. He gave himself for the sake of his bride. This is a beautiful story. It's the sacrifice we talk about every Easter, which is primarily the reason why the Easter service is my favorite service to preach. Because it declares so magnificently the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made that he, that he not, not only died, but he died as a substitution for us. Where we deserved to be on the cross, Jesus took the cross from us and offered us life instead. Instead of the wrath of God that we deserved according to the word of God, Jesus became the appeasement for God's wrath so that we wouldn't have that wrath on us. The Bible says there's no more wrath for us because of what Jesus did, because of what Christ sacrificed for his bride. The least we can do is look at him and not notice anyone else. As much as all of that is a sacrifice and as much as I love teaching about the Easter service, 
This ain't Easter. This is Christmas. We're coming up on Christmas. And before we start really a Christmas series or even really enter into the Christmas time, season, I wanted to talk to you about the forgotten sacrifice. Not just the sacrifice that he made in his death, but the sacrifice he made literally from the time he was born until the time he was resurrected and ascended. Because all of it was a sacrifice for him. The forgotten sacrifice, the, the sacrifice that we fail to notice or fail to discuss or fail to meditate on the way that we should is the sacrifice, the forgotten sacrifice of Christ's birth. People are oh, that's not really a sacrifice. He was a baby. I'm going to explain to you why it was a sacrifice today. I hope to, as Pastor Rick said, paint that picture for you. But I want you to understand that he is and was God. Born in a manger. Into the stench and filth of a, a cave. Surrounded by the filth of the Judean desert. Forgotten. Because God hadn't spoken for 400 years. And in that amount of time, those that were teaching about the prophets either manipulated what the prophets said or didn't grasp the meaning of what the prophets said and taught wrongly. So this God, our God, was under, misunderstood, gone unremembered, and without a place to stay. And when you think about without a place to stay, I know enough people that I don't think I would ever be without a place to stay if it meant sleeping on someone's floor. But our Savior, the creator of the universe, had no place and sacrificed by coming here knowing that all of those things would be true. Isn't that incredible? That's, inc that's incredible to me. And this is how that happened. I'm going to read the Christmas story to you. And the most succinct Christmas story that we have comes out of Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And it just reads like this. Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth this was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was with, because he was of the house of the family of David. And so you had to go back to your people, wherever your hometown is, to be counted. And so that's what he and Mary did in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him in cloths, not fine linen, not beautiful clothes. Nobody had prepared a baby shower for him. But by cloths, stripped in stripes of cloth, our Savior, 
who came from the majesty of heaven itself was wrapped in strips of regular cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. In the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terribly frightened. Which should be the case. Anytime you, come in, anytime you read anywhere somebody come into contact with a heavenly being they, they are terribly frightened. I love it when people say, I saw an angel. It was so cute. It was so beautiful. You didn't see an angel. You saw something else. It may have been beautiful, but you didn't see a whole lot of it because you looked at the carpet most, mostly. Anyway. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For today in the city of David there was born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Amen. And so, all of this being true, all these things that I've discussed, Jesus was born in a manger, wrapped in cloths, forgotten, this is the sacrifice I want to talk about today. How the king of the universe came and lived like a pauper so we could live like princes and princesses. This is the beauty of the God that we serve. And I'm going to teach today specifically out of Philippians 2, 5 through 8 to explain that truth. Which says this, Have this attitude in yourself, which is also in Christ Jesus who though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death upon a cross. So there's a couple things I want to talk to you about today surrounding this idea that we have to remember the often forgotten sacrifice of Jesus' birth. The first thing I want you to remember is Christ's sacrifice was born out of humility. Christ's sacrifice was born of humility. I can't explain the miracle of incarnation, which is to say that God came down and became Man and God. The Bible calls it a great mystery. I can't explain it, but I will tell you it's not possible. It wouldn't have been possible if Jesus wasn't humble enough to do it. If Jesus didn't see a need in us that couldn't be fulfilled any other way and minimized himself or was willing to minimize himself so that we could be greater. Here's one of the greatest truths of all time. Jesus' attitude of humility paved the way for our salvation. What, what do you mean by that? My favorite verse, many of you know, is John 3.30. And John 3.30 is simple. People say, I actually say it as a joke, but it's kind of true. It's my favorite because it's short. But it says, he must increase, 
I must decrease. This is John the Baptist talking about Jesus, making the, making the road straight for when Jesus would show. He would say, he must increase, I must decrease. Did you know we serve a Lord and Master who although John the Baptist said that about him, he said that about you. Sometime in eternity past, God determined that in order for us to be greater, He must become less. He must be willing to come less. There's a, there's a definition, you guys have heard me state it before probably, for grace, and it's grace is a God that stoops. I'm just going to let you sit on that for a minute. Grace is a God that stoops, that gets down underneath your burden low enough to take it from you and lift it off of you. A God that stoops low enough to take on your sin, to acknowledge who you are and love you anyway. Sometime in the past, God himself said he'd be willing to become less so that you could become more. This is what Jesus Christ did through his birth all the way through to his ascension and still does right now intercession at the right hand of the Father. He became less so that we could become more. None of what was accomplished had this decision not been made would have ever been accomplished. But what makes that level of humility possible? Here's, here's what makes that level of humility possible. I've heard, I've heard humility defined on several occasions as thinking of yourself less, having a modest opinion of yourself. You guys, most of you have heard a definition similar to that. That's the surface level generic definition. It doesn't explain the, the what and how and why Humility is possible. Humility is only possible when you can trust that that person or persons you're willing to humble yourself in front of. Jesus was able to humble himself. His sacrifice was born of humility because he had absolute trust, confidence in God. He knew that what God said would happen would happen it's for the sake of what was placed before him that he had joy he knew that because god said it it would happen imagine if you learned to trust the people around you enough to minimize minimize yourself in front of them do they have to deserve that trust no but if you had the heart of god you'd give it anyway we didn't deserve the trust that caused Jesus to stoop before us. So we not only have to have a modest opinion of ourselves, but we need to let go of the flesh and recognize that the people around us deserve our humility. Because this is what Christ did. Why did he do it? Why did Christ sacrifice? And the answer to that question is, Quite simple, for us. 
Jesus was so humble, he, he, he personified self-denial, self-giving, self-sacrifice, selfless love. He humbled himself as the servant, and we should humble ourselves as the servant. I wish I could say this enough times that everybody in the room really grabbed a hold. I wish I could say it enough times where I could really grab a hold of it. But our responsibility is to become less so that other people can become greater because that's what Christ did for us. But instead, we want to argue about who's the greatest. I'm better than you. Oh, I'm bigger than you. Well, my position is more important than yours. We do this even in the church. I had somebody tell me one time, well, I'm just a greeter. Or I just work in a parking lot. Can I tell you that the person in a parking lot is the single, and the greeters are the single most important ministry in this church? You know why? Because they're the very first impression of the, what people get concerning this church when they pull onto the property. They are the first evangelists for Launch Point Church. They get to turn the first shovel full of soil. By the time they get, I told Angela and I were talking about this in regard to the church that we came from. I went to church not caring about Jesus. And we went to Cornerstone with the intent of leaving there after a couple of weeks and visiting churches. But when we got there, there was a guy at the gate that waved at us. And for whatever reason, I liked that. And this burden that I'd carried around, I felt a little bit of it lift off. And then in the parking lot, there was another guy that sent me to the visitor lot. And I liked that. And a little more of this burden lifted off. And then somebody came around to the door and greeted us and walked us into the lobby. And I liked that. And the burden was lifted off. And somebody walked us through the lobby to an usher. And I liked that. And somebody walked us, and that usher walked us from where we were at in the lobby to a chair. And I like that. Those people were willing to become less so that I could become greater. So that Christ could become greater in me. Because can I tell you, we never left that church as much as we intended to visit. The love, the kindness, the love them, serve them, speak kindly to them philosophy of ministry that we have here kept us there long enough for God and those people to beat back the darkness enough to where we could finally see Jesus. This is what Jesus did for us. He humbled himself, our responsibility is to humble ourselves. But we want to argue about who's the most important. Mark chapter 10. Let me tell you what's happening here. James and John have decided that they're going to they're be the right and left hand man to Jesus in eternity. And so they start arguing. I'm the best. We're the best. We're the best. We're better than the rest of these ten. And so they go to Jesus along with their mother because because apparently they can't do nothing without their mama. I was going to say something crazy, but I won't. Along with their mama. And Jesus asked them, and they asked essentially, can we, 
Can we serve with you in heaven? Can we, can we sit at your right hand in heaven? And Jesus says, can you take the cup that I'm about to take? And not knowing what he was talking about, I said, yeah, absolutely we can, because that's what non-humble people do. They're arrogant enough to think they can do something they're not capable of doing. And while they're talking, Jesus hears the other ten in the background becoming indignant. Well, who these guys think they are? We're serving. We walk the same dirt road they walk. And Jesus does this. He calls them in and says this. Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Shall be your what? Your servant, not your master. Seek position if you want to. The only thing you're going to find is forced humility. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Even Christ himself didn't come to be, to, to be served, but to serve. And he gave his life as a ransom for many. His sacrifice, the forgotten sacrifice, started with a child in a manger, surrounded and covered in filth, so that his life could be a ransom for many. And I think that's beautiful. Because why did he do it? He did it for us. So we could become more. So we could become greater. Number two. His was a sacrifice that emptied itself. Going back to the text. Who although he existed in the form of God. Did not regard equality with God. A thing to be grasped. But emptied himself. Taking the form of a bondservant. And being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. Jesus emptied himself by not regarding equality with God a thing to be grasped. This doesn't say that he gave up his, his divinity. He's still God. He didn't give up his Godness, his deity. What he gave up on purpose were his divine rights and privileges. He didn't have to come here. He could have stayed in heaven and been perfectly content. He could have been surrounded by beauty all the days of his all the days of eternity, but he determined to come here. He determined to empty himself, to give of himself, to set aside all divine rights and privileges. Not his deity, but he never used his deity for his own good, which is what's meant by giving up his rights and privileges. I love a God that determined that he's going to give up his rights so that I can have rights. Because you know you had a right to do one thing before Jesus, and that's die and go to hell. People are like, whoa, pastors don't talk like that anymore. That's the problem. 
People ain't telling them the truth. Without Jesus, you're dying and going to hell. But He gave up and sacrificed His privileges so that we don't have to because He loves us. And that started from the time that He was born. Always thinking of someone else. Never thinking of Himself. Never using His ability, His power, His strength to benefit Him. Always using His power, His ability, and His strength to benefit those around Him. We see this in two parallel instances. When Jesus went to the desert to be tempted, He says He was tempted three times by the enemy. And one of those temptations was, I know you're hungry. Why don't you take this stone and turn it into bread so that you're not hungry anymore? Jesus have the ability to do that? Absolutely, Jesus had the ability to do that. But he never invoked his divine rights and privileges to benefit himself. But then, later, he feeds 5,000 by creating bread for them. That's amazing, isn't it? Why is that amazing? It wouldn't be amazing if I did it. It would be amazing if I could, if I could do it. But it wouldn't be amazing if I did it because I'm just Jim. The creator God of the universe did it, which, was, which is what makes it amazing. He emptied himself of his divine privileges and rights, could have done anything he wanted to do, had the ability and the power to do whatever he wanted to do, but never, ever took advantage of that for his own sake and privilege. And he could have. There's a story in your Bible of Jesus and the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane and the, the, uh, the guards, the Jewish guards, and everybody comes to arrest him. And Matthew being Matthew, or Peter, I'm sorry, Peter being Peter, it's in Matthew, the story's in Matthew. Peter being Peter takes his sword out and slices one of those Roman soldiers' ears off. If you haven't heard this story, it's pretty crazy. You should read your Bible, man. There's a lot of cowboy and Indian cool kind of stuff like that in there. Slices his ear off. Jesus picks it up, puts it back on his head, just all boop, because he's Jesus. And, and essentially, he, he reads Peter the riot act. This is what he says. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once Put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Wow. Do you not know that I could use my divine abilities and strengths if I wanted to? Trust me, the only reason I'm not is because I didn't come here to do that. I came here to sacrifice myself for your sake. And that started at birth. He emptied himself. <laughs> he emptied himself, setting aside the glories of his father's throne. This is the one that messes me up the most. Like, I live in a nice house, but I don't live in heaven. Jesus lived for all of eternity, without imperfection. 
pain, tiredness, suffering, sin, moral decay. He lived in absolute perfection. Our Bible doesn't tell us much about what heaven looks like. People are all, what are you talking about? It says all kinds of stuff about what heaven looks like. It says very little about what heaven looks like before Jesus showed up. It talks a lot about what heaven will look like when we get there. And so we don't know. But if the new heaven is any indication where the perimeter wall is made of jasper, where the structures, the buildings, the, the road is made of gold, where the glory of God's presence fills the temple. That's what Isaiah chapter 6 says. That the train of God filled the temple. That means His glory. Just every nook and cranny filled the temple in heaven. Being in the absolute, perfect peace, love, comfort, and light of the Father for all of eternity. To give up the glories of his own throne for a manger. To be wrapped in dirty cloth is unimaginable to me. But if you're ever looking for a reason to praise... I'd start there. He emptied himself, not just of his father's throne. He emptied himself temporarily of his unique, intimate, face-to-face -face relationship with God. I couldn't imagine. I couldn't imagine being in the presence of God. I've been, since 2006, I've been living my whole life with one thought on my mind. Well done, good and faithful servant. I've spent every day of my life since I gave my life to the Lord anticipating, waiting, expecting, finding great pleasure in the meditation of the idea that at some point I'm going to get a face-to-face -face opportunity to see the king of the universe. And Jesus emptied himself of that privilege to come here so that you might be saved. Praise God. Why? Because he loves you. Because he wants to. That's what sacrifice is. Giving up something for the better, betterment of someone else. He gave up a lot. Emptied himself completely. Became sin when he knew no sin. Separated physically and spiritually from God. For one moment in time. Which I think for a guy. For Jesus who had never been separate from God. Physically or spiritually. Would have been devastating. When he says. Take this cup from me. I don't think he's talking about getting beat on. I think he's talking about the separation. He's going to endure with the father. Which is the reason why. He screams out right before he gives up his spirit. Eli Eli. Lama Sabachthani. That is my God my God. Why have you forsaken me? In 
his taking of our sin. He emptied himself of intimacy with the most intimate thing in the universe, which is the God that we serve. Why did he do it? I know I keep asking a question, but it blows my mind. It's, it's almost a rhetorical question. I find myself asking myself that question. And then I'm equally blown away when I say, because he wanted to. Because he loves us. Because he needed to make the sacrifice so we could be in his presence. All of these things are true. And then finally, he emptied himself by being made in the likeness of man. He emptied himself by being made in the likeness of man. I skipped one. Because I kind of covered it earlier. If y'all saw the, her skip past one and then jump back. He was born as any other child. He emptied himself and born in the filth of a child. And you guys ever got, I mean, you guys got kids? You ever, you ever watch that process happen? Yeah, I wouldn't recommend it. I mean, it's beautiful. After it's cleaned up. At some point, it becomes beautiful. But Jesus, in all seriousness, endured the filth of childbirth. Covered in the tainted blood of man so that he could cover man with his untainted blood. He got hungry for the first time in all of eternity. He got sad for the first time in all of eternity. He got tired for the first time in all of eternity. All of these things or what it means when the Bible says he emptied himself. Not seeing equality with God, something to be grasped. You know what he did see? Worthy of grasping? You. He let go of that to get hold of you. It's beautiful. And then finally... His was a sacrifice that was obediently submissive. Jesus obediently submitted, not just to the things that we have mentioned. He sacrificed himself even to the point of death. But not just death. No, it says to death, comma. Even to death on a cross. I feel like Paul emphasized that because death on a cross is much more horrific than any other kind of death. He was so desiring to be with you, so desiring to do the will of God, so desiring to let go of himself, become less so that you could become more, that he died the most horrific death imaginable. All the stuff that we do talk about on Easter, the scourging, the beating, the being nailed to a cross, the pulling out of his beard, the idea that a, a whole, um, not a legion of soldiers. There's another word. I can't remember the name of it. 
of soldiers would have punched him and mocked him. That's up to seven or 600 men. I've been punched in the face like eight or ten times in a row, but never 600. Having your skin torn off, a cloth placed over it, long enough for it to congeal into the blood and the nerves and then have it ripped out again. This is what Jesus did to be obediently submissive so that we could belong to him. And here's the rub. All this stuff that Jesus did, this forgotten sacrifice, the sacrifice we very rarely, if ever, think about as a sacrifice. Here's the rub. 1 John 2, 6. The one who says he abides in him, that's Christ, ought to himself walk in the manner as he walked. Oh, it's a gut punch. He sacrificed out of humility. He emptied himself completely for the sake of others and was obediently submissive even to the point of death of the will of God. If we're going to call ourselves Christians, we have to walk as Christ walked. The rub is that that's who we're called to be. All the incredible things that I've just said to you is what God expects of you. To walk in humility. To lower yourself. To be willing to stoop so others may become greater. To completely empty yourself of your rights so that others may obtain rights they never previously had. And to walk in obedience to the will of God. This is the will of God. People say, man, I don't know what the will of God is for my life. This is the will of God for your life. God, the, God speaks to us through, the, through his spirit. He speaks to us through wise counsel. But if those two things don't filter properly through this, one of those two things either wasn't the spirit or not wise counsel. Amen. This is the word of God, the will of God for your life, which means that we have to do what the word of God tells us to do. Whether we like it or not, we can't say, I don't like that, I'm not going to do that. I do like that, so I can do that. What Christ did, he expects us to do. Because I'll read the text again. The one who says he abides in him ought to himself walk in the same manner as he walked. And that's a challenge. He, he expects to be able to do through us what he did in us. And so I read you guys the story about James and John a moment ago and the expectation of servanthood. In Mark, I think it's chapter 10, is where that conversation happened, which is before they enter Jerusalem, and which, which is the week of that Christ died. So they had that conversation. Sometime less than a week later, Jesus realizes that conversation didn't stick. They didn't hear him. 
And so this is what he did. He told him, he said, don't y'all get it? The greatest person isn't the one with the greatest platform. The greatest person is the greatest servant. The greatest person is the one who's willing to do the, to walk in humility, to empty themselves, to be obedient. And so this is what he did. He stepped away from what would be the last supper. He took. And he took a towel. He wrapped it around his waist. And he told them, no one is above the servant. People say, that's Pastor Jim. He leads the church. That's sweet. I'm the conduit by which God works in the, a part of the conduit in which God works in the church. My primary responsibility here is to be the primary servant here. And God tells us the greatest of these is the least of these. And he took that tile and he washed the feet of his disciples when they were unwilling to do it themselves. And so, for the sake of demonstrating all the points I've here, made here today, I'm, I'm going to wash a brother's feet. Because it's not about who I am or who I think I am. It's about who Christ is in me and what he's called us all to do. While I do that, Caleb's going to sing a song. It's titled, No Other King. How Many Kings? And How Many Kings is a song that says, How Many Kings Gave Up Their Throne for Me? One. One king gave his throne up for me. The least we can do is give up our throne. Torn 
I'm be- 